At Realmetrics, we collect and analyze a ton of slot data, and we're hit up frequently for insights, tips, and tricks. So we decided to do a webcast in which we present, discuss, and otherwise nerd out on our work. Coming to you from our offices in lovely Leiden, the Netherlands, welcome to Realcast. Good morning, Don. How are uh, things in Purina country? <laughs> Good morning, Nick. Things are going to get real cold here today. It's supposed to be minus five Fahrenheit. Yeah, I saw, you know, my, my dad is in northeastern Nebraska. Those guys were at minus, I think, 12 last night. <laughs> so that's, that's silly. Not pleasant, not pleasant, not pleasant. And and how Midwestern are we that we begin every every one of these things with a discussion of the weather? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Forget world events, this is weather events. <laughs> okay, so well, we we do have uh, it's it's uh, late December here, twenty second of December. We have a World Cup behind us, and as an American living in Europe, each time the cup rolls around, I get a lot of questions from Europeans about the the uh, sports popularity in the United States. So I've made a bit of a habit of of monitoring. American viewership uh, figures uh, for the finals, and I and I pulled some Nielsen data yesterday. So here's what we have. Uh, let's see, uh, 2022, France versus Argentina, 26 million American viewers. Uh, 2018, France versus Croatia, 17.8 million. 2014, Germany v. Argentina, the highest ever recorded, 27.3 million. 2010, Spain versus the Netherlands, 24.7 million. And 2006, Italy versus France, 18.9 million. Famously, the uh, match in which Zinedine Zidane Headbutted that Italian dude. <laughs> so, um, so going into this tournament, the average was 22.2 million. So this year's viewership uh, represents uh, it looks like an 18% increase relative to that mean, but also then a 5% decrease relative to that 2014 record. Now I haven't seen much in the way of uh, aggregate American sports betting numbers, but um, we both looked at some geolocational data that showed American online World Cup betting was the uh, second only to the Super Bowl in terms of the number of those uh, placing wagers. So it was 35% higher than the NBA final, 39% higher than the NCAA final, and 76% higher than the Stanley Cup. Now, it was only a third of those who wagered on the Super Bowl, but I must say I was, I was pretty shocked to see it in that, in that second fiddle uh, position. Now, mind you, I've I've not correlated these data with anything, and as legalized sports betting is is pretty new to the U.S., uh, there there is not a great basis for trend lines here. So take these data with a grain of salt. But if they're to be believed, there does indeed appear to be a modest uptick in popularity, and I think everybody is going to be watching this very closely. As as we all know, there is some very big money in football. So uh, the, some some interesting uh, uh, stats there. I, I, I'm always interested to see where where Americans are, are going with football. Don, anecdotally, do you do you find a lot more people uh, uh, becoming interested in this? Oh, absolutely! It, it grows year by year. And living in St. Louis, it's always been a soccer hotbed. And oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Soccer is really big in St. Louis. Matter of fact, we get our MLS team here this year. They just released their schedule this weekend. So um, they start playing here in late February for the first time. We have an expansion team. 
and um, yeah, soccer is really popular. If you went to the different restaurants around town this weekend, um, they had signs posted on the door saying that we will be open early so we can show the World Cup match at a lot of okay. the sports bars and stuff. Yeah, cool. So, and how did you do it? Since in, in U.S. time, you know, that was a morning match. So it wasn't exactly a prime time, five o'clock in the afternoon Super Bowl. You know, the, the match was done at noon here in St. Louis. Okay. Yeah. And how how'd you do on your uh, on your wagers? I did okay. I bet Argentina pre uh, World Cup. Then I bet them again after their odds went up after they got beat by Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I almost had a really nice score because I parlayed them with Messi to win the golden boot. And with 10 minutes left, I was winning that bet. And then in overtime, I was winning the bet until a certain 23 year old Frenchman just shot that uh, down the toilet. <laughs> yeah, of course, a hat trick. My so God. I ended up losing by a goal. But uh, an unbelievable match. It was so much fun to watch. Yeah, there were a number of great ones. Uh, Croatia versus Netherlands was fantastic. Or excuse me, Croatia versus Brazil. That was a hell of a match. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Netherlands versus Argentina was a good one too. So yeah, indeed, lots of fun. So uh, okay, so here we are, episode four. And before we get started, a few housekeeping items. Uh, first, we'd love to tackle any questions that anyone listening may have. So if you have a question about what we're presenting or something you'd like us to present, please drop us an email at realcast at realmetrics.com. Again, that's R-E-E-L-C-A-S-T at realmetrics.com. Our policy is to keep all questions anonymous, so please speak directly and don't worry about us revealing your identity. We do not do that. Uh, Secondly, and on that note, we have another question, or in this case, uh, a request. So this comes from a slot VP in the Western US who asks, Hey guys, any chance you'd be up for doing a retrospective on your most interesting discoveries of the year? Great show. We're actually using this stuff. So that's great to hear. Thank you for that. Uh, And in answer to your question, sure, we'd be happy to do that. So based on your request, uh, Don and I have assembled a list here, the top 10 insights of 2022. So Don, you ready to get at this? Let's go. Okay. And my wife keeps telling me that I need to move my jaw a lot less on these podcasts. So we're going to divvy these up. <laughs> so I'll take the I'll take the first two. You grab the next three and then we'll we'll just toggle from there. Okay. So here we go. Okay. Top 10 insights of, of 2022. So number 10. Uh, selecting games without independent data remains a fool's errand. So this isn't necessarily a new insight, but it's something that we've tracked from the very beginning. And basically, whenever we onboard a new subscriber, we get a historical data set that enables us to establish performance and activity baselines before and after the introduction of pan-industrial data sets. So we sit down with the slot teams, look at what they are, set goals as to where we want to go, then we get at it. And when, when we do this, what do we see? So first of all, let's just go back to our to our baseline assumption about uh, success rates and products. So what we see is that 78% of slot product released is never going to reach a pan-industrial value of 1.0. So that's a, a 22% success rate overall. And the way then this trickles down is what we see is that when games are selected and placed into environments without any independent uh, data sources, what we see is that 60 to 70 percent of games so selected are going to drop below 1.0 internally within six months of install. The other thing that we uh, see um, on average is that 32 percent 
of all game conversions result in regressive revenue performance. So the revenue goes down instead of up. And then when we look at this after pan-industrial uh, data sets come in, we see 95 to 98% uh, of, of new titles that come in remain above 1.0 uh, 12 months post-install and close to 100%. It's, it's really just kind of a rounding error uh, on conversions uh, result in progressive revenue performance. So the, the key takeaways on this, um, number one, I just say we're, we're always concerned um, with how analytical capital is expended within slot organizations. And our data support uh, pretty much unimpeachably that spending hours and hours combing through parse sheets, cut sheets, math models, uh, and, and game mechs is, is really an objectively bad use of, of analytical capital. And, and, and why is that? It's really because the design elements that drive successful games, they really transcend whatever you can extract from this type of collateral. So we, we, we just really need to stop assuming that everything boils down to, to math and mechs. Because as we view it, a, a hit game is, is really like a hit song in that its success is really contingent on its ability to establish emotional connections with specific player segments. So as with hit songs and the reasons that we love them, okay, it's not just the melody. It's not just the beats per measure, just the lyrical content, just the cover art. It's more what we would describe at this point as more of a fortuitous combination of design attributes that span, you know, it spans hardware, graphics, sound, math, mechs, and more. And if it was as easy as math and mechs, believe me, Failure rates and new product introduction would be nowhere near 78%. And, and we also wouldn't see the degree of mimicry that we see in response to each major hit. And everybody knows that one. So we, we, we get a, a product that comes to market and just absolutely knocks the cover off the ball. And within a year, we see 20 products that look a hell of a lot like it. So really, we, we, would, we wouldn't see this stuff on the scale that we see it if... Um, if it, if it really boiled down to just a, a couple of design elements like that. So that's uh, number 10. And as for number nine, um, it's that core product performance decays faster and more dramatically than previously assumed. So this comes from a study uh, that was really led by Don earlier this year in which he was able to quantify that core revenue performance decays at a compounded rate of 10% per annum. Now, this, this does indeed vary by supplier, but is an overall just kind of a macro figure that you can plug in to, to any budgetary projections, et cetera. And the way that this works is just to, just to think it through. Uh, if you have an average daily win of, let's say, 300 bucks and you have that decay rate and you put a game on the floor that's performing at uh, a floor average, by the end of year one, it's going to be at 90% of floor. By the end of year two, at 81% of floor. And if you draw this out all the way to year five, it's at 59% of floor. So why do we care about this and what's its effect? Well, when we look at inventory these days, we go into any casinos, we really look at the inventory uh, uh, with, a, uh, with a microscope. What we see is that roughly 25% of everything that's out there exhibits effectively zero productive capacity. If you want to know that term, go back to the previous episode. We spent a lot of time on it. What that means at, at effectively zero productive capacity is it's generating something like two minutes of play per hour. And then we see that between 55 and 60% of inventory falls into that 
critically low productive capacity category. That's where we see revenue fair share in kind of the, the 30 to 60% range. So the floors are extremely bottom heavy. Now, the, this, this uh, core uh, rate of decay uh, is, is uh, problematic and it's, it's an issue because as we discussed in the last episode, those EBITDA-based uh, projections of core versus premium dramatically inflate core productive capacity and not only and and they negate not not merely deflate the costs of core assets and and as a result and and for a bunch of other reasons core has really been dramatically overselected over the years and the quality profile of our inventory reflects this the the floors are just getting older and and doggier and uh, kind of a, a, another thing that comes out of this is is all these misconceptions about the the economics of, of core and premium and just the economics of slot floor in general. It's really creating a lot of problems, including a lot of needless uh, tension between uh, operators and suppliers. So that uh, was uh, our pick uh, for for number nine this year: core product performance decaying faster and more dramatically than previously assumed. So Don, you want to take number eight? Number eight is play patterns have changed post-pandemic. Um, we've seen a lot of play patterns shift in the last two years. Um, Post-COVID reopenings, the players have generally become younger. Um, the over 65 crowd has been slow to come back to the casinos. And those were the players who were carrying the physical reels. The average age of the customers has dropped by about four and a half years post openings. And most of the floors had too many reels before COVID hit. Um, there's been a general shift towards video for the last 20 years now, but it's really accelerated the last 10. And most floors had far too many reels before COVID. It's really worse now. Um, most casinos can get away with 15% of their floor being reels at the most. And we see floors still above 20%, above 25%, and those machines are just not earning any money at all for them. So most casinos need to do a fair share analysis to determine their proper levels. And you really need to aim for higher than 100% fair share on the reels just because of their low occupancy and their high average bet, especially in the dollar. If you can get away with 110 to 120% fair share in dollars, um, so everyone really needs to look at their physical reels on their floors. Now, Don, I had a, a question because I know you've dipped into a lot of the the demographic uh, data and looked at a lot of stuff about you know younger younger segments of, of players, et cetera. And I know that there was always kind of a school of thought out there that reels were great, that physical reels were great introductory games, right? So it was there was not a lot of intimidation uh, to them. They're pretty straightforward propositions, et cetera. Do you see anything in the data that either supports or refutes that? Yeah, I just finished a study on what customers under 45 have been playing, and it's video. Yeah, uh, They've spent very little money on physical reels. I, there are a couple themes that um, do resonate with them, but generally it is video. And their average bets are higher. Mm -hmm. They're more of gamblers. Um, they will tend to gravitate towards lease games more than any other segment mm -hmm. they really like dragon link um and they will play a really high average bet it seems like they're chasing jackpots 
Okay. Um, so if you can think of some of those real games that you can chase jackpots where you have decisions, um, those are the ones they've been gravitating to. Okay. All right. Cool. So on we go. Number seven is locational sensitivity is more dramatic than previously assumed. I've looked at all the lease games, all the core games, and even your very best lease games show location differences in revenue. Your core games will vary greatly. Some will work anywhere. Some will only work in A locations. But the big takeaway is don't bury your lease games. Um, there's a lot of casinos that try to put their lease games in the far corners of the casino to try to increase traffic patterns over there. And it really does degrade the performance. Those games that you bury sometimes go all the way down to house average when they can do three and a half, four times house average in a good location. And when you're spending $50, $70 a day for those lease games, I'll take the four times house. Um, of course. The other big, yeah, the other big takeaway is don't waste prime real estate on games that'll produce the same revenue in an average location. You see a lot of really good games right in their prime spots and they don't need to be. They're not making any making any more money for you in a prime spot. They do just as well in a C location. Conversely, there's a lot of games that need to have a prime spot to succeed. Anything with a unique math model. So if any of your vendors are pitching anything truly unique, like the hexagrams that came out a couple of years mm -hmm. back, Anything that's really wild, you really need to put those in a prime location. They just don't succeed anyplace else. So you really have to use that location grading system to try to figure out what the best location is for your machines. So it's not a slam dunk. You just can't put them anywhere. Yeah. And just as a, a little uh, self-promotional piece here, I, I will uh, mention that in Real Metrics, we guide you to precisely the sweet spot location on every single title. So I just wanted to throw a little self-promotional point in there. Yeah, okay. it's, it's been really wild. It's one of the, the, the neat things about the site is trying to figure out what works where. And you know, bank swaps was always just, it was more of an art form than anything else. And, you know, you're, it was such a, a neat thing when you could swap banks and both of the revenue goes up. And now this tool helps you do that. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to play that guessing game. You can actually put stuff in neighborhoods. Yeah. Perfect. On to number six, um, there's too little awareness as to who's playing what theme. The lease games are being carried by your host level players your very best lease games are getting pounded by your host level players. The host level players have less interest in your core offerings beyond the very best themes. Your top 20 themes, top 50 themes at your casino are the only ones that your host level players are playing. Um, conversely, the your low ADT players, your daily $100 or less players, they stay away from lease games. They gravitate towards your obsolete games, um, your older cabinets, your older themes. They've got themes that they like and they stick with them and they don't try anything new. Yeah. And you, a, had, you had some you had some great metrics on these things too, Don. I think about wallets and whatnot. Yeah, the um, your host level players will play about thirty percent of their wallet on lease games. Um, which is a really high number considering that most floors are five, 7% lease games, but 30% of their wallet 
is spent on lease games and their average bet really jumps on lease games. On a core game, their average bet's $2.45 per spin. On a lease game, it jumps to $4.50 per spin. And they'll sit there. Um, It was 20%. The average trip length on a slot machine is eight minutes. On a lease game that they like, that they prefer, 20% of their their session time is over an hour. So they'll sit in that seat for over an hour and play that game. So their theoretical is up, their average bet's up. Um, it's just, um, it's the perfect storm. So yeah. if you really want to raise your host level play, make sure you have the, the lease games that they want. Yeah. Um, too many casinos are capacity constrained for the best lease games. They may have one bank of them, or they may have one of them and they're running at 85% density or higher. And, uh, they're just restricting their host level play. Yep. And as we've discussed uh, in, in previous episodes, when we're doing that, when we're, when we're constraining that play, uh, what's happening is we're experiencing significantly reduced uh, player spend and and satisfaction and and loyalty. And this is most dramatically seen within those those high end segments. So it's a very, very important point. OK, yeah, their, their play, their play gets halved. On yeah. If they don't play their their machines that they want to play. Yeah, I think we've seen like fifty to sixty percent lower productivity when they're when they're on stuff they have to play. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I'll take uh, number five. Um, <clears throat> marketing and operations are not collaborating in mix management. So through informal polling, we've found that with very few exceptions, um, marketing has zero role in mix management. And I think it's important to point out here, critical to point out that in virtually no other retail industry on the planet is this the case. And, And in many cases, what we found is that operations has no access to player data. So there are actually structural impediments in place that, that block the understanding of, of demand. And, you know, honestly, if you're operating this policy, our, our guidance at this point is categorical, just kill it. It's a, it's a terrible policy and, and really can't uh, be defended. And, um, but, but what we've seen is this, this, uh, the wall between these departments is, is far more uh, widespread and problematic than we'd ever imagined. And we hadn't imagined it because, because really it's just, uh, such a, such a misguided, uh, uh, approach. So it really, for us, epitomizes the command model approach where you're, where you're selecting and marketing inventory without, um, demand indication. And it just it, it 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 deepens this problem of lack of understanding as to who's playing what, and we get to the point where we are now, uh, where our shelves are dominated uh, uh, truly by low demand offerings, uh, a product in which uh, uh, simply uh, no one is interested. So that's number five: marketing and operations not collaborating in mix management. So Don, you want to take four? Number four, core inventories are growing older, dodgier, and more malignant. We're seeing the core games stay on the floor well beyond their expiration date. Uh, The average age of the floor just keeps getting older and older and over, older and older and older. And as we talked about earlier, the decay rate for core games drops 10% per year compounded. 
Uh, so their, their revenue capabilities, especially after year five, they really start to fall off because you don't have the conversion options. Uh, slot capital is not keeping up with the price increases. We've got cabinets now that have gone past the $30,000 mark. Um, it wasn't that long ago that cabinets were in that eight to $12,000 range. And now they're 25 to $35,000. The slot capital is not keeping up with that. So the floors just keep getting older as people put less and less new machines on every year. And the older they are, those machines are becoming dogs and they are malignant. They do crowd out high demand product. They do damage host level play and spend and loyalty. Uh, when players are forced to play those games, they play less and less and less. There, and there's a couple reasons for that. One, the, the counting treatments, the depreciation, um, Depends on what your organization does, but if you're, you've got a game that you've got to keep on the floor for seven years um, versus getting rid of a poor product, that's an, an issue. Another issue too is with the declining slot capex. If you buy a machine now, you better assume that you're going to have that machine on your floor for ten years, unless you are a very progressive organization and you are still flipping out 15, 20% of your cabinets per year, and there are very few of those. If you buy a machine today, you better assume you're going to have it for 10 years. And there's a lot of long-term slot directors and slot VPs out there. Um, that's kind of a scary thought. So it is. I'm. This is one that this is a, a trend that really has me quite concerned, especially as you know. I look at this new course. I was looking at. We, you know, we promoted one of those. Um, aristocrat titles this week uh, for that uh, mm -hmm. Neptune single. My God, those numbers are incredible. <laughs> so, they are. There's a lot of a uh, lot of appealing stuff coming out. And it's 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 not cheap. Yeah, you, you can almost see what's going to happen as these floors get older and older. The only way to fix this is to increase your premium share on your floor because people just will not have the capex dollars available to flip out 15, 20% of your floor every year. So if you increase your floor share of premium product, you won't have to because you'll have a lesser number to work on every year. Yeah. And there's enough premium product out there that you can do that with. Yep. And you kill multiple birds with one stone on that one. So uh, absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, number three, uh, industry inventories are badly imbalance. So first, uh, what do we mean by this? So in a nutshell, what we mean is that due to really decades of this command model management, and that's when you're installing and marketing products without, you know, detailed demand indication by segment, uh, because that slot inventories are, are truly upside down. So on average, for every one high demand, super performant unit that high value players just pound, we're offering seven units to which they're largely indifferent and 38 that they absolutely detest. Again, for every one that they love, we're offering seven that they don't care about and 38 that they hate. And why should you care? Because not surprisingly, the folks who generate the lion's share of your revenue spend significantly less when they're playing stuff they don't like. It's that simple. And if you think about it, it's it's hardly shocking. So when we go out and we look at, at, at casinos today, what we see is that 55 to 60% of the inventory out there is exhibiting critically low productive capacity. 
And in more than 100 casinos uh, studied on, on this, we found that fewer than 50 titles generate half of all slot revenue, which is just a, an incredible stat. And Don, I don't know, what what is the highest number you've seen? Is it actually over 50 or, or below? Anyways. I had one at 61, but I had several in the 30s. Okay. Where 30 <laughs> so, had generated half of their revenue. Man. Okay. So again, we we a lot of a lot of points about that, including the over diversification uh, uh, point, which we uh, to which we dedicated the first uh, uh, two uh, episodes of, of Real Cast. So go back and, and check those out if you're interested. Um, the other thing that we uh, see is that the highest demand inventory is relegated typically to less than 10% uh, uh, floor share. And all in all, the, these imbalances are disproportionately hammering your host level players. So when they're playing games that they have to play instead of what they want to play, spend typically drops by 50 to 60%. So as Don mentioned, the, the good news on this one is you can take a good, healthy bite out of this simply by expanding uh, intelligently your uh, premium floor share, okay? And, and the other point here is that you really must plot a court uh, a course for for transition, and and we're we're leading a, a number of folks through this. But what it what it amounts to is a multi year transition where you just pick a higher level strategy and really make sure everything is all demand driven, all all decisions, etc. And then you work within your your budgetary framework, your standard budgetary framework, to then make that happen over over uh, multiple years. So. What we found is that there is between 30 and 75% headroom in that host level play. And um, you know we can assure you that y- you are not going to capture this until you adopt uh, a demand-driven mix management framework and really get after what it is that, that, uh, uh, that these people need in terms of, of capacity. And um, because uh, it's it's uh, related to the imbalance point. I'll, I'll take the next one as well. Number two, cannibalization fears regarding premium are largely meritless. That's a big statement here, but um, to to what are we referring? Well, it's this age-old belief that highly performant products steal their performance from other machines. So when we place these ultra sticky units on the floor. All we're doing is moving static spending levels from one set of assets to another. So question is, is this happening? No, it is not. In, in fact, um, I describe these fears as being largely meritless only because I'm assuming that somewhere out there it may have happened. And based on our evidence, uh, however, and folks, we have a ton of it. We've yet to see this. In fact, what we see is that this static spending assumption is almost entirely self-fulfilling. So if it appears to be static, the overwhelmingly high probability is that your mix is constraining it. That is, you're you're offering too few products in which high-value players gleefully empty their wallets. Okay. And so until you until you really put this in place, all you're going to do is you're going to capture only a fractional uh, uh, percentage of those uh, wallets. So um, we we reached these conclusions uh, really via uh, two real metric studies, which are the largest of their kind. One we had discussed in earlier uh, podcasts about our COVID versus post-COVID analyses, and then through controlled experiments. And and those controlled experiments that that we put out into the field really opened our eyes on this. So these were just compositional changes only. We didn't have any type of marketing support or anything uh, uh, that nature. We targeted 
host level uh, uh, players exclusively. We increased uh, premium floor share, removing one dog for each incremental unit that we that we added. And what we saw was that host level engagement with dogs, which we had seen increasing year over year, just because the, the floors were getting uh, older and doggier, that absolutely flatlined. Simultaneously, what we saw is their engagement with the new inventory absolutely skyrocketed, straight up hockey stick. And then the the really critical um, uh, variable was we wanted to see you know what this did to host level wallet uh, on a on a multi trip uh, uh, basis, and what we saw is that that increased by thirty five to seventy five percent, where the average bet went up, the session duration went up, and uh, very interestingly, all the net promoter scores went off the charts with the the reason cited. Suddenly, I can play what I want. So, um, you know the the um, the cannibalization fears out there. What we're finding is they're they're just largely the result of, you know, as as Don had said at the end of uh, uh, last month's podcast. You know, people love the revenues and hate the fees. So there's that that that's a big part of this. It's just the pricing. But I think we all need to just get accustomed to the idea in gaming that superior products are are, are more expensive. It's it's that simple. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how EBITDA-based projections can contribute uh, to these uh, uh, fears on on cannibalization, et cetera. But what it really boils down to is just insufficient awareness of demand tendencies on a segment by segment basis. And once you start looking at it that way, you see that you know a lot of these fears are are abated. So Don. The number one. Number one, best practices models for inventory management are badly outdated and need to change. We're seeing virtually no strategic management or target marking of inventory occurring anywhere in the industry. There's insufficient grasp of demand tendencies. There's a lack of a unified product segmentation model and a customer segmentation model. Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions regarding segmentation and segment marketing, uh, and they ought to be revised. Um, we talked to a lot of operators who use ship share rates as their mm -hmm. basis for buying slot machines. And please stop. Uh, there, there's no sense in going on past history to buy current machines. Um, there's no way if you looked at their performance that some of these manufacturers should be getting what they're getting. Some should be getting a lot more and some should be getting a whole lot less. Um, account executive recommendations are fine, but you have to tailor those to performance indicators. Um, industry awards are pretty irrelevant. Um, we know which of the best games are. Um, as Nick said earlier, you know, 70% plus of the games are going to fail. Um, you really got to have some information out there to to go off of your on your suggestions. Um, there's too little attention paid to configuration options, and the big thing I find is there's a, an insufficient use of fair share analysis and pre-purchase planning on what do your customers want and need. What yeah. do you need to expand? What don't you have on your floor that you need to have on your floor? And that's probably the biggest takeaway. You go back to some of the earlier comments on um, what players are playing post-COVID. There shouldn't be a whole lot of reels being bought right now unless you're one of those very lucky few casinos 
that um, dollar reels are a very large portion of your revenue. Um, there's just a, a lot of floor management that has to take place and you really got to figure out what your players are demanding that you just don't have. There's just a big inventory imbalance and um, it gets worse and worse every year. Um, you know, you, the casino operators are, are really retailers and it's time you, you start acting like it. It's, <laughs> yeah. you've got to know what your customers want. You got to put it in the right spots for them. It's, it's the old grocery store analysis that we use pretty much every time we have one of these real cast um, broadcasts. It's, you've got to put the right product in the right locations on the floor. Um, and we've shown some success building unified segmentation models and um, best practices, you know, step-by-step -step stuff. What do you need to do before you buy slot machines? And if you're not doing that, you're going to make a mistake that's going to be on your floor for 10 plus years. Yep. And I was, you know, I was thinking about this today, Don, and I, I have to say that uh, honestly, in the an entire span of my gaming industry career, and depressingly, it's getting close to 30 years now. <laughs> Um, honestly, I've yet to feel more strongly about anything than I do about this. Uh, and, and in the, you know, in the past decade, our industry's information landscape has changed completely. And, and the issue is that the best practices models for inventory management out there today are loaded with all sorts of, of hacks and shims that were really designed for that, you know, 20th century now obsolete information landscape, right? We just didn't have the, the, the data sources that we have today. So, you know, when we're talking about ship share data, AE recommendations, uh, EBITDA only budget, budgetary projections, command model selection and marketing, these methods, they, they distort reality, result in negative outcomes, and, and in the end, really eviscerate value for one reason beyond all others combined, and, and really that's habit. And, and there's a way to test this. I mean, if you just ask yourself, why am I using ship share data? Why am I asking for AE recommendations? Well, you know, why am I not basing everything on demand? If you're honest with yourself, the answer is not, you know, because no superior approaches or data sources exist, but rather, you know, because that's just kind of the way we've always done it. <laughs> and, and, mm -hmm. and although tradition is great in terms of its ability to provide us, you know, a sense of security and whatnot, it's also antithetical to progress. So if you're, if you're brutally honest with yourself, you really start to see how, how false that sense of, of security can be. So, you know, a completely revised best practices model represents, in, in my view, you know, a big, bright, shiny brass ring that's dangling right in front of you. And, and we cannot emphasize strongly enough that all you need to do here is grab it. I, I can assure you without fear of contradiction that if you do so, you will be very pleased with, with the results. I had a, a GM that I, I really enjoyed working with. His one of his favorite sayings is, "You don't know what you don't know." Yes. <laughs> and right. And 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 there are there's been so much change in slot leadership post COVID. Um, there's a lot of people have retired. There's a lot of people who are uh, becoming a director or a VP for the first time. And those first year or two of being a VP of slots or casino operations is hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of learning. No doubt. And there's a lot of things out there that um, can make your life easier. You can make better decisions, um, but it's a process. There's a, there's some setup work. You just don't um, go out and pick a new car just because you like the way it looks. 
You know, you, you do some research, you look at all the things that are important to you. And it's the same thing with slot machines. You look at all the things that are important to your customers. And um, there's some research you have to do before you start buying and spending your million, two million, ten million dollars a year. Without question. Okay, Don. Well, I think we've covered it for today. Our our top ten list of the uh, top ten insights of of 2022. So I don't know about you, but tomorrow I will be loading up the family truckster and uh, dragging my brood uh, across Europe. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have fun. Yeah, ready to pack up and get some sleep preparation for that. <laughs> okay, well, very oh, good. Happy holidays, Nick. Yeah, same to you, Don. You take care. Thanks so much. <laughs>